today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 23. Luke um, chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. <coughs> they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is God's word. Thank you, Eiling, for reading God's word for us this morning. And thank you and... All of the other members who serve on the front line in the medical field, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I recognize it's a very familiar passage of Scripture, and I find it difficult at times to preach a passage that is familiar, and so this title is a distinction with no difference. It's on the Lord's uh, and Last Supper. I, I want to pause and, and say something that's being approved by neither elders nor Sherry. So I'll give you all a moment to brace yourselves. Do you, do you know that Singapore is among the most educated nation in, in the world? It is. The citizens of Singapore are some of the most educated citizens in this entire world. Did you also know that Singapore, curiously, is one of the most resistant nations in terms of getting a vaccine? 
So, so, so this is not God's word, right? I, I'm separating this. this. This is just me. And for those of you who think I'm being political, I'm just going to forgive you for that because I'm not political. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted trying not to sing in the service. And, and some of you have pointed out I haven't been doing a very good job of not singing in the service. The gospel demands full-throated praise. I cannot imagine us ever in the future gathering as we once did, singing God's glorious gospel to one another unless more of us just trust the science. I found out on Friday you don't even have to be 60 to get your first jab because we went with a girl who's not yet 60 and we both got our first jab. So that's just a little um, Ian's personal stuff. You can do with it what you want. You can decide whatever. That's all I'm saying. Now let's go to God's word together. I wonder if you've ever had to wait for something. I, I am assuming you have. I mean, if you're like me, you uh, perhaps have waited for the perfect sunrise. I've got about a thousand pictures on my phone me sitting on the East Coast, waiting for that sun to rise. And there's a plane that comes in right around 7 o'clock, and I'm trying to get it just as it goes in the center of the sun, and I, and I keep missing it. I, I keep waiting for that perfect sunrise. Or, or maybe you're waiting for that Lazada order that was supposed to be here on Friday. Jonathan? Not his fault, but may, everybody's waiting for something, right? We're, we're waiting for a, a bus, a, a train, we're waiting for the rain to stop so we can get a grab. Some of us are just waiting for a break. You know, just, just opportunity. Many, many of us may be even waiting for a grandbaby. And some of us, of course, are waiting for travel restrictions to ease. All of us are waiting. And we hope. And the thing about waiting and hoping is it reminds us about how much in our life we really cannot control. Because if we could make it happen, we wouldn't need to wait. If I could just make the bus arrive, I wouldn't need that SG Buses app to tell me when I can hope it will arrive. If I could declare the sun to rise by the word of my power, I wouldn't be waiting there arms shaking for the perfect moment, if, if we could make opportunity happen, we wouldn't be hoping. In our text this morning, the wait is almost over because the king of deliverance is in his city. And this, the outline this morning is going to be really simple, just three points. The plot, verses 1 through 6, the preparation, verses 7 through 13, and then the Passover meal, verses 14 through 23. Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts. Uh, Father God, we have, all of us, encountered a week that held some surprises. Some of us this week have felt anxiety pressing in. Others have been worrying about sudden unanticipated illness. 
many of us are trying to find margins of when work ends and family begins, when rest starts. I pray, oh God, that you would just give us a moment of holy pause. Just help us to shed distractions so that we might hear clearly from you. There's not even one of us, a God, that need to hear from a white guy. We just need to hear from an almighty God today. So I pray that you would help us order our thoughts and redirect them upon you and your word. Do this so that as we leave this place, we might all know we have indeed been in the presence of an almighty, sovereign God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this photo of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, taken 10 years before he was imprisoned and eventually executed. A young, single pastor discipling young boys, the joy in their faces, unaware that war would soon start. The month of his execution, he was executed on the 9th of April, 1945. He wrote these words from prison. He wrote, A prison cell in what, which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Now, I understand in the Christian calendar, we're not celebrating Advent at this point. We're celebrating Lent. But since chapter 6, Luke has been writing about Advent. He's been writing about the coming, the coming of a king to his city. It was a city full of inhabitants who were imprisoned by their own rebellion. It was full of men and women who were enslaved by their own sin and who were waiting, hoping, not for a week, not for a day when the bus would come on time or the sun would rise. They were waiting for a thousand years for a deliverer, a liberator, a king who would come and would establish his kingdom. They were waiting for that moment. It was Passover. And here we can see, first of all, in the first six verses, the plot. It's fascinating that as the liberating king drew near, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, the Passover drew near, and this year, Jews on this island will join Jews all over the world and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover beginning March 27th through 3rd of April, seven days, Saturday to Saturday. They will remember the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, which for some of them was the central act of redemption. It is the central act of redemption for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. It is the intervening act of a redeeming God. But as all of Jerusalem was preparing to celebrate God's redemption, Jerusalem's shepherds, the chief priests and scribes in verse 2, were seeking how to put Jesus to death. Now, now, we can't really tell from the English, 
But the Greek word means subterfuge, under, underground looking. For an opportunity to put Jesus to death. Why underground? Because this phrase, for they feared the people. I don't know if you've noticed this in the Gospels. This is a recurring theme of religious leaders and leaders in general. They, what? Feared the people. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, it says, Though Herod wanted to put John to death. Why John to death? Because John had condemned him for marrying his brother's wife. And from that moment on, Herod wanted to put him to death, but he didn't. Why? Because he feared the people. He was a politician. And Mark chapter 12, verse 12 says, the religious leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they did not. Why? They feared the people, so they left him and went away. And then several weeks ago, we were looking at Luke chapter 20, verse 19. Remember the parable of the wicked tenants? Tenants who were squatting on their master's land, and every time the master sent his servants to gather fruit from the crops, they would kill them. Until he sent his own son, they killed him as well. And as soon as the Pharisees heard this, they knew, Jesus, that guy's talking about us. We're squatting. We're the ones squatting on the Lord's sovereign territory. And so they sought to put hands on him that very hour. What stopped them? They feared the people. In fact, if you're like me, I've often said this to Sherry, that I grieve for King Saul. Because it's not like David was perfect, right? You know, I, told, I would often tell Sherry, you know, if God rejected me, no matter how hard I tried, God's just going to reject me, I would be mental as well. I mean, can you imagine? But God's word clearly says why God rejected him. We see this in 1 Samuel 15 when God speaks to Samuel, his prophet, and says, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me. How did this happen? We hear about it in Saul's own confession. In verse 24 he says, I have sinned because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. And now again, this phrase is repeated in verse 2. And it demonstrates how absolutely disqualified these priests were to shepherd God's flock. And, and friends, if you have a sense that your elders fear your disapproval, then we are not qualified to shepherd you, God's flock. Sure, it may be a popular elder who fears God's people, but a godly elder models what it is to fear God. He is the one. He alone is worthy of our fear and reverence because our fears... Our anxieties do not demonstrate a radical dependence upon God. Instead, they indicate a surprisingly resilient faith in the enemy. When I worry, when I'm awake late at night, anxious over things I cannot control, that is not demonstrating a faith in God. It's demonstrating faith in someone else. My weakness 
or even sometimes the evil one. And worse, it creates opportunity. It creates an opportune time. That's the biblical phrase. Now, as Luke is getting to the end of his gospel, he is beginning to tie up loose ends. Do you remember Luke chapter 4? After Jesus rose up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. The heavens opened up. The voice of the Lord was heard. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then right away, the Spirit of the Lord took him into the wilderness to be deprived of food for 40 days and 40 nights and to have a confrontation with the evil one. And in that, conversation, in that confrontation, Jesus, the Son of Man, unlike the original man, was faithful, showed himself to fear the Father, not fear men's pleasure. And at that moment, the evil one left him, and Scripture says, until an opportune time. That opportune time has come in chapter 22. Satan had been waiting for it. And now in verses 3 and 4, this is what it says. Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away, meaning Judas, and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So first, Judas consults with the evil one. And remember, the original sin was not the evil one dragging Eve to the tree. It was simply meeting her there and agreeing with her. At this moment, the evil one met Judas and agreed with him. He finally found his people. Then Judas brought him along to confer, have a committee meeting with the religious leaders. So, let me clarify a few things about this text. Because if you just lift this text out, you will not do judgment or justice to the full counsel of God's word. First thing I want to say is, number one, Satan can do nothing without permission. If you need a text, write down Job chapter 2, verses 1 and following. In that text, God is on his throne in glory, and all the angels come and present themselves to him, and Satan comes also and gives a report to God. God gave him permission to torment Job, but set margins, but do not take his life. You may think life is so terrible. The devil is tormenting me. Remember this, even in difficult grace, nothing happens to you except that it was being given permission by the one who loves you beyond measure. He is the one that approves every difficult grace, every global pandemic, anything the evil one might do, he must do with the parameters given to him by God. That's the first thing you've got to remember. The second thing, in that moment... Satan entered space that was not designed for him. If you want to write down Matthew 25, there is space designed for the evil one. 
In Matthew 25, Jesus is telling the parable. Some of you say, I love you. I've done all this great work, but I will separate one day the sheep from the goats, and the goats will go to the fiery place which was designed for Satan and his angels. Satan has a home. It is hell. But you, friends, were designed to be a residential palace for the king of creation. He comes in. Remember, that's the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. He cleanses our house and makes it a holy temple. That's why Paul reminds people, you remember first century believers, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Honor God with your bodies. The second thing to remember, friend, is God designed you for himself. Not for the evil one. And third, just to be crystal clear, if that space designed of God for himself is already fully occupied by the God who is holy, 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 if Christ is in you, you do not need to be delivered. So, so yes, consider this to be a repudiation of the rubbish of deliverance ministry. If God, king of creation, lives within you, Satan would not be setting up tent in your home. He will be pleading for mercy. He will be falling on his face before the Lord who lives in you. Know this, he who lives in you is greater than what? He who lives in the world. So, verses 5 and 6. The religious leaders, God's under-shepherds of his people respond to this deal with the devil with these words, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. Now, I'm fascinated by Luke's specific choice of that word, glad, because of all the adjectives he had available to him, he chose this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why is it interesting to me? It's interesting because that word glad or rejoiced is almost exclusively used as a human response to the glorious intervention of God. The word is kairos, built on grace, right? It was the human response of the shepherds as they saw the heavens lit up and the angels singing, glory to God in the highest peace on earth. It is the persecuted believer's response to the promised reward in heaven, rejoicing. It is heaven's response to that one lost sheep who is brought home. And it was the Pharisees' response to this deal with the devil. Did they, did they honestly think, glory be to God, he's delivered this man into our hands? Or was Luke suggesting the most difficult grace you have experienced is designed for his glory? That cancer, that disappointment at work, those bad results, even those bow to the glory of a sovereign God. Even a global pandemic. So we need to move on because I'm taking too long. Cairo. Bless the Lord. Number two, the, the preparation. 
verses 7 through 13, and in verses 7 and 8, then the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now it's actually in Exodus 12 that sets out exactly what every Hebrew, every Jew ought to do on the day of Passover. So in the afternoon, the, the lamb, before Sabbath starts, in the afternoon, the lamb is slaughtered. By evening, they are to eat the lamb Take the unleavened bread, break it, share it, and drink together. That is outlined in Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Particularly notice this. They shall eat the flesh that night. Now, most of us remember the blood on the doorposts. I, I often use that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We, we're reminded that that when the angel of the death, which is God, who is the God of life and death, sees the blood of the perfect lamb on the doorposts, and I will often say on the doorposts of our heart, it's kind of a stretching, a metaphor, then the angel of death passes over. That's why it's called pass over. We often remember the blood, but many of us forget, but they shall eat the flesh of that lamb that night, and in a few moments, we're going to see why that's so important. But first notice this. It's what I've just kind of called the divine delay, or, or maybe the messianic misdirection. I think we ought to assume that though Judas met the, met the religious leaders in secret, Jesus knew. Just, just assume that. Assume that Jesus already knew what Judas was up to. He Satan had already entered his heart to betray Jesus. He had already sealed the deal with the Pharisees' blood money. The Pharisees were praising God, and Judas was seeking an opportunity to betray him, verse 6 says, in the absence of a crowd. Just assume Jesus knew that. But Jesus, knowing what was in Judas' heart, knowing that Judas would be looking for the right dark moment, did something fascinating. He called aside two trusted disciples, Peter and John, and he basically gave them a go look for a needle in a haystack job. Now, that's a metaphor I should have researched a little more. But basically, if you're looking for a, a, a needle in a haystack, you'll probably feel it before you see it because it's hard to find in, in hay, a needle in a haystack. In fact, I find it a little bit difficult seeing it. Without the thread, we probably wouldn't see it. It means it's a really, really hard task. And why was it really hard task? We know two things he specifically said. First, go into the city and look for a man doing a woman's job. Sorry, it's awkward in the 21st century to bring this up. But... In the first century, no delicate man could handle the heavy lifting of a woman's job. You would never see in the first century a man, remember these are clay jars, carrying water. That's what women did. So the Samaritan woman in the middle of the day at the well, she wasn't trying to avoid men who would be out in the middle of the day. She was trying to avoid the other women who were also out bearing water jars back to their homes. This was a woman's job. So find that crazy thing. 
That, that's going to be hard. And then the second thing that's going to be hard, you know, find a master who's prepared a Lord's or Last Supper, a, a Passover meal for his family, and tell him, hey, uh, the rabbi wants it. No name. Find that guy who's willing to give up his Christmas, his Chinese New Year preparations, that one time of the year when you gather together as a family. Find that guy who's willing to give it up for strangers. And they went and found it exactly as Jesus said. All of this to keep a Satan-bent, determined betrayer from acting before Jesus lent new meaning to an ancient meal. And this is that meal. The Passover meal in verses 14 through 23. I confess... um, Every time I speak, I, I try to make my art degree worth something, which is why I always make you look at paintings. Um, Dagnan Bouveret is one of my, French, my favorite French uh, artists uh, because of the way he depicts uh, faces and light and dark. I, I find his depiction of this last meal particularly riveting because of the face of the betrayer, the simmering detachment of Judas. While all other eyes are on the Lord, while ears are listening, Judas is detached and listening to some other conversation. But, but beyond that, beyond his ability to really capture what emotions must have felt like by the use of light and dark, he probably didn't consult the Bible. Because the text says that when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table, but they're all sitting up like Europeans. In actual fact, Jesus and his disciples would have been laying down, feet pointed out, leaning on their left elbow and and eating with their right hand. The hour meaning seven o'clock. The Sabbath begins. They gathered in that place to celebrate this meal. And in verses 15 and 16, Jesus said... For I have earnestly desired. Now, now this is fascinating again. There's actually the desired word in Greek is just repeated to express the intensity of his emotion. With great desire, I desired. Now, we don't, we don't speak like that, so interpreters have, have changed a bit. With great desire, I have desired to meet with you before I suffer. He's beginning to paint a picture of who he truly is. Eleven are intensely staring at him. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is an important enough phrase that he repeats it again in verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the wine until the kingdom of God comes. This is important projection. And I only say this because, again, I love love my dad. He was a good and godly father. But he was trying to raise two boys, right, in a context that was hostile to the gospel. And so we would read this text, and he would say, so boys, you know, eh, it means we're not supposed to drink. Yes, uh, don't drink wine, scripture, for my father. 
and, and perhaps for some of you, and, and many of you know I don't drink. It's not because of this verse. It's because I stared into the deep darkness of my DNA and decided better to avoid stuff I don't plan on being addicted to. This verse does not mean we should not drink. What this verse does mean is, again, Luke is tying up loose ends. Remember chapter 14 when Jesus spoke of this great wedding banquet? Jesus is saying, honor me in this because I will not celebrate this meal again until God's kingdom comes in glory. And remember in that banquet, the, the wedding dinner was offered to friends and relatives and nobody had the time, meaning Jewish people. And so Jesus said, the master said to his servant, go out to those who don't know how to come. The blind, they can't see their way here. The, the lame who can't walk here. Go to the highways and the byways. Jesus was saying, you're not just going to remember this for the Lamb of God who sacrificed for you. You're going to remember this looking ahead that you are a part of every tribe and tongue and nation gathered at the table in glory. This is Jesus adding new meaning. Exodus was a central point of redemption. Now we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We did last week. To remember the central point of our redemptive history. He's provided this new center that not only looks back, but also looks forward. Now, WBS, this, this is not an advertisement, but if you're interested, Wednesday night Bible study at 7.30, we've actually begun a new study in the, book, the letter of Hebrews, and we just had that kind of introduction last Wednesday, but, but here's something that the writer of Hebrews specifically does. For six chapters, he builds a case for his premise that Jesus Christ is a superior high priest. He's not the kind of priest who goes crawling in sheer terror into the presence of the Lord. Only once a year did this high priest go into the holiest place on the planet, and he went into the horrible holiness of God with great fear, so much so that they tied a belt with a bell. Should he be struck dead by a holy God, at least they could pull his corpse out. But in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer is saying, now because of Christ, verses 19 through 20, therefore, brothers, we have confidence, not fear, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through his, the curtain. Remember the curtain? Which is his flesh, torn. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Perhaps then this will help us begin to understand one of Jesus' most difficult statements. He was saying something to the Pharisees and religious leaders that caused great offense. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, there is no life in you. This is why in the first century Christians were marked for persecution because you people are cannibals. You have your secret meetings. 
You eat the flesh of your God. And let me be clear, when we take the wafer, when we drink the cup, nothing magical happens. The wafer does not become like the flesh. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about faith. And I like John Piper's summary of this. He says this. For Jesus, eating is believing. Drinking is believing. He promises eternal life to those who believe in him. Believe what? Believe that his death, the breaking of his body, and the spilling of his blood pays in full the penalty for our sin and that his perfect righteousness is freely given to us in exchange for our unrighteousness. Believing this is how we eat Jesus' flesh. Believing that is how we drink his blood. And this is why with desire he desired to establish this last dinner. Did, did you notice there was, there was no lamb shank on the table? Supposed to be. Exodus 12 says, you shall eat the flesh. There was bread. There was cup. Where is the lamb? The lamb was standing in their midst. He was the sacrificial lamb. And that is why he uses this graphic language. You shall eat, metaphorically, my flesh. You shall drink, metaphorically, my blood. I need to move ahead. We have another congregation coming. I want to close with, with this. You know, um, coming this March 27th, every Jewish head of household will take that dry bread and at 7 o'clock that Saturday, 27 March, each head of household will hold up that bread. They will break it and they will say this, is the bread of affliction with our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who has need come and eat this Passover meal. I'm thinking it's possible that you are here and this is Singapore. You, you, you can have anything you want and yet you, you still feel hungry. You, you know, by the time you get Sherry and I's my age, we, we don't give birthday gifts because if we need something, we just go and get it. But, but maybe you're here and you still feel there, there is something that I still need. Jesus in this meal is saying, I am your deliverer who came from the outside to dwell among you, to open that cell, to release you. I am what your soul most desperately needs. I am all that satisfies. When I got to this place in my preparation, I'll, I'll be honest, I just had an intensely joyful moment in my office. And then Luke had to ruin it for me. Because verses 22 and 23 is really a somber note. He 
says this. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Luke is leaving us, his readers, with a warning. To those of us who, like Judas, seek the benefit of a Savior, but not the blessing of his kingdom and lordship, he will do his glorious work with us or without us. Church, grace with us or without us. His work will go as it has been sovereignly determined. And, and so I come back to this man. Be, because maybe you were raised, like I'm, I'm old enough that I was raised with the kind of evangelism that sold fire insurance. I remember as a six-year-old being told, do you, do you want to die and go to hell and burn there and you'll be separated from your parents? Or do you want Jesus? Of course I want Jesus. And, and so as a seven-year-old, I accepted a Savior and then for almost 15 years struggled as to why this Savior never did what I wanted. Because apparently, the Lord doesn't work for me. It took me 15 years to get off the throne of my own life. And I look at Judas. And I want to say to him, brother, the hand of your Lord is so close. Just, just, just reach. And, and, and maybe you're here and like me, you suddenly realize that he will be Lord or he won't be Savior either. And, and I would say to you, just like I would say to Judas, don't leave the room. Don't, don't, don't leave the YouTube live stream. Don't, don't leave this space and not turn to him and say, oh Lord God, Take me, purify my heart. So, so as we close today, I just want to ask you to reflect on these few questions. What are those things in your life that you lavish your faith on? What, what is exactly is creating your anxiety? What, what are you waiting for? And, and how might you in this holy moment turn into Christ who has brought you here? How will you redirect your trust on the one living person who is worthy of it, who can be trusted with your faith and your worry? And how might the reminder of Jesus work for you inform your peace Inform your nights. Inform your thoughts and action. I was so touched by Eugene's illustration of Zach preparing. Because I, I was that little boy listening of that last day, you know, and the preacher would say, you know, every thought you have will be up there. <laughs> you, you know whose judgment, who, who will be judged on that day? 
the work of Christ in me. Is there room for peace as you give him the trust for the work he has done on your behalf? And then just be still and know that he is God. And maybe you have the courage to ask yourself, am I the one? Have I grieved you in some way, God? Have I betrayed you in some thought or action or behavior? If you have good news, turn into him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you have made us and know that we are weak and broken and are completely unable to save ourselves. No religion can save us. No number of offerings can bring us liberty. But you alone intervened at just the right time. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. For an obedience that embraced the cross. For the fact that he became sin for us so that we might be your righteousness. God, thank you that you still hear the prayers of broken, wounded people today. Help us, O oh God, be our strength when we are weak. Remind us that even in these days of difficult grace, you are sufficient. We bless you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.